0: On Bad Cops. An elite unit of plainclothes police officers has gone rogue in the city of Baltimore. They're called the Gun Trace Task Force. And their leader is Sergeant Wayne Jenkins. These cops have also been stealing money and drugs, planting evidence and framing people.
1: I can't do this no more, yo. It's either we get it or we don't. Or we come close to something...
0: The FBI have been on their tail for months using secret wiretaps to build their case against the squad.
1: So so I know we can get something, but
0: finally, the officers are arrested. And after an explosive trial, seven cops are sentenced to lengthy stretches in federal prison. Judge said the scandal has done lasting damage to the police force and eroded public trust. The case is over, but the question remains, was this a one-off, or a symptom of something deeper, a rot that runs right through the Baltimore Police Department? I'm Jessica Lussenhop, and this is Bad Cops, from the BBC World Service. Part 7, The Golden Boy. Over the last three years, I've written letters to all the former officers of the Gun Trace Task Force who are now sitting in federal prison. I was hoping they'd tell me their story, right from the start of their careers. I wanted to understand the transformation from swearing an oath to serve and protect to becoming thieves and fabulists who made a lot of money putting illegal guns and drugs back on the streets. I wanted to understand the machine that is corruption— How does it take a fresh-faced rookie into its gears and spit out a dirty cop? I wrote to Jamel Ram, Mamadou Gondo, Maurice Ward, Evodio Hendricks, and Daniel Hersell. A few of them wrote back, but none of them agreed to an interview. I also wrote a number of times to Wayne Jenkins, but he never responded. Since starting his 25-year sentence, he's not spoken publicly. Just as I was wrapping up this podcast, I wrote to him one last time. And I'll be honest, the last thing I expected was this. You have a prepaid call. You
1: will not be charged for this call. This call is from Wayne Jenkins. An inmate at a federal prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept dial five now.
0: Hello? Hello, Jessica? Yes, this is Jessica.
1: Hi, man, this is Wayne. Hi, how are you? I'm hanging in there, how are you?
0: I'm doing all right. Um, I have to admit, it was crazy to to hear this voice, so recognizable from the secret FBI recordings and wiretaps, talking to me. Weeks before this, I'd gotten a strange email from a man named Stephen Page. He claimed his group, Rose's Legal Project, was representing a number of high-profile prisoners, among them El Chapo, the infamous Mexican drug lord. At first, I thought this was some kind of Hollywood agent. Page told me he's also now representing Wayne Jenkins. It turns out, until recently, he was Jenkins' cellmate. He's what they call a jailhouse lawyer. And since being freed, he's been working to get a sentence reduction for Jenkins. Part of that includes a media strategy. When Paige first made contact, I was wary. I felt like I didn't completely understand the agenda. But at the same time, I was hoping that whatever Wayne Jenkins might say could peel back another layer on the corruption in the Baltimore Police Department. The plan was for Jenkins to call me from one of the communal prison phones. I put aside a whole day for this. It was an uneasy wait. And when he finally called, I was trying my best to hide the nervousness in my voice. First of all, uh, I have to confess I'm astonished that we're talking at all. Um, I don't don't know that I ever thought this would happen. Um, But I I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, is there anything that you kind of want to just say right off the bat?
1: Uh, Right off the the bat, uh, we wasn't living lavishly. I lived modest. We wasn't enriching ourselves. I have no money in the bank when I got arrested, not a dime. And they said we were enriching ourselves and making hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of dollars, and, and that was so untrue.
0: The first thing Jenkins wanted to talk about was money. He didn't want anyone to think he'd been living the high life.
1: I was using the money to take care of my family. I don't have expensive cars or clothes or houses. We went on vacation. My kids had the clothes they wanted. And we wasn't living extravagant at all, but I could go out to Applebee's and Friday's every day. We could go to the movies twice a week. My kids wanted new cleats. They got them. New baseball bats. They got them. So I kind of was putting a lot of it back into the children. But I, but, uh, I did it because it, it just made me give my children a better life. And I'm all and I'm for that.
0: I asked Jenkins if he can remember when he first crossed the line. Where did this all begin?
1: You don't start out corrupt. You don't start out like that. I never broke the law a day in my life just until I became a cop. I never sold a drug a day in my life until I became a cop. I never thought I would sell a drug. I thought I was on the right side. And like money, like greed, it creeps in on everyone, but you're slowly brought into that world.
0: Do you remember the, the first time you ever took money in the course of your career?
1: I know exactly when. It's not a lot of times I did take money myself, but I do remember. I remember uh, (laughs) I was actually uh, coaxed into it by by veterans.
0: I mean, does it happen like in the spur of the moment? They hand you money and say, this is what we do? Or do they tell you ahead of time, this is what we're going to do? Like, How does that work?
1: They, uh, They test you. They're like... Like on this specific one, there was a couple hundred thousand dollars in a briefcase. And the uh, veteran probably at the time had, I would say, 14, 15, 16 years on at the time when he opened it up. He was like, man, that's a lot of money. You know, you know, we're going to a, a bachelor party this weekend at Atlantic City. He was a sergeant at the time. We opened up a briefcase and uh, he was like, that's a lot of money there. And he was like, you know what? It sure would be nice if we had $10,000 to go out for my wedding. And I was brand new and never took a dollar, and I was scared. I was like, if he testing the mirror, that's how, this is really how it went down, just meet him in an apartment room on top of the bed was a briefcase. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just saying it sure would be nice if we had $10,000 a piece to go up to Atlantic City. And I remember taking the $10,000. How did you feel? Uh, I thought it was being tested, like I was scared. But then uh, uh, that weekend, he actually picked up on my mother-in-laws. And we traveled out there about six or seven cops in the back of the van. And he walked up with the porch, and he was
0: like, you still got mine, right? And I was like, yeah. He was like, all right, give me mine. And I gave him ten grand. And did that kind of thing happen regularly?
1: On a regular basis, yes. Yep. 100%.
0: When Jenkins talks about his time as a police officer, there's still pride in his voice. I was a cop
1: for 14 years, and I was the best. The best in the city the golden boy. No one could drugs and guns like me. We got four times as many guns as any cop in the city did. Wherever I went, I got guns because I was aggressive. I wanted to get guns.
0: But now that he's in federal prison for 25 years, Jenkins is prepared to talk about how he got those results. He lays out this kind of road map of normalized corruption that he says is endemic to the Baltimore Police Department, stuff he's seen since he was a rookie, the kind of things you rarely, if ever, hear cops admit to. And it starts with lying, on arrest reports, on applications for warrants, even in front of judges and juries. He says if he didn't have probable cause, meaning a legal reason to stop somebody, It didn't matter.
1: I was taught to get the guy by all means. And this is a saying we state. Don't let probable cause stand in the way of a good arrest. It means get the bad guy, however you got to get him. But if you got to lie about what you've seen or what you heard or what you witnessed, as long as he's dirty, he's got the drugs and he's got the guns and he did the crime, then just get him. Just get him. And we'll worry about how to write it later. So if you could get in that man's house and arrest him, if you could arrest him in a car stop by lying, whatever you could do to get him, That's how I was taught. That's from the top to the
0: bottom. I want to pause there for just a second. Because while lying on reports might not seem as dramatic as stealing bundles of cash from drug dealers, it confirms what many Baltimore defense lawyers had been saying about Jenkins for years. That he was lying about what really happened during arrests, as well as lying on the witness stand. It was one of many warning signs that just got ignored. Jenkins also says that the pressure was always on him and other plainclothes officers to produce. That meant seizing guns by any means necessary. Not with carefully crafted investigations into illegal gun traffickers, but by chasing people off of street corners. And for every gun he seized, he got rewarded in the form of overtime hours. Hours he didn't actually work. When you get to plain clothes and work narcotics or guns,
1: it's bred into you. So you start out patrolling the blue and white. If you don't get guns and drugs and in full pursuits, don't even think about going to a drug unit. I got one running. He's turning left on Alameda, making a right old green, man, He's got a gun. That's who you want. Because why would you want someone else who's not going to get out the car and be aggressive in your unit? He's not going to make you look good. And to look good and to get days off and get unlimited overtime, you have to make your boss look good. Because in the commissioners and the deputy commissioners, hey, the checkbook's open. You keep getting these guns. Now, the other squads, they don't get guns, and they're playing clothes, They're not getting overtime. No they don't get to come in when they want. My whole career, I was told, wait, come in. This from a federal prison. Wait, I don't care what you work. You're getting guns, the checkbook's open.
0: He says this sort of casual corruption happened with drug seizures, too. Jenkins says officers routinely recovered illegal narcotics and... If they didn't feel like making the arrests or doing the paperwork, they just pocketed the drugs and let the dealers go. I was taught to do
1: that, like it's late in the afternoon, or we get off early or we want to go drinking, or we got a softball game, or tomorrow we have to work overtime. The sergeants would teach you, the lieutenants would teach you, let them go, get them out of here, keep the drugs, right? They would never say submit them. They know what we're doing, and we're throwing them out the window. So for years, we threw drugs out the window. Literally, everybody throws them underneath the train bridge. I've seen it done my whole career. Going to eat with the guys when I was a rookie and everything. Just stolen drugs out the window. Pills or heroin, bags of marijuana. Seen it done, honest to God, 500 times.
0: He also tells me how police officers would put their heads together to avoid punishment if any of their illegal activity came to light. When cops
1: get in trouble, see there's a whole history of this. When cops get in trouble or cops get accused of stuff on the street, or someone gets suspended, or someone gets an internal affairs complaint, immediately we get together and you go over your story. You say this, you say that, right? You're taught that. The second someone gets in trouble, we meet up and we talk face-to-face.
0: You say all that, and my question is like, is working that way making Baltimore safer?
1: You have to, because you're not going to beat it by playing fair. If you do exactly what the law states, you're not going to put nobody in prison. You're not going to put nobody in jail. They're going to beat the case.
0: So you do see it as sort of an ends-justify-the-means thing?
1: I did. I did, yes.
0: Jenkins doesn't mince his words when he's talking about the culture of corruption he claims is embedded in the Baltimore Police Department. But he's a lot less clear about his own role in the crimes of the Gun Trace Task Force. He downplays his part in many of them and outright denies that others happened at all. Even the ones written into his plea agreement, the document he signed that details specific criminal acts that he pled guilty to. Here is one example. In the spring of 2015, the city of Baltimore was rocked by civil unrest after the in-custody death of 25-year-old Freddie Gray. At one point... Dozens of pharmacies were looted, and millions of dollars worth of medication went missing. And that was when one of the most shocking incidents described in Wayne Jenkins' plea agreement took place. This is from that document.
1: In April 2015, following the riots after the death of Freddie Gray, Jenkins brought DS prescription medicines that he had stolen from someone looting a pharmacy so that DS could sell the medications.
0: D.S. is Donald Stepp, Jenkins' longtime drug-dealing partner. Stepp, a bail bondsman and convicted cocaine dealer who Jenkins had known for years, turned around and sold those prescription drugs. But when I asked Jenkins about this, he denies that it ever happened.
1: I never took a thing. I never had time. I didn't deal with Donnie every day like that. Donnie straight made all that up, so help me God, I never took one piece of drug from the rise. I never took nothing from a looter, so help me God, Donnie made every piece of that up, so help me God.
0: You didn't go see him that, that day or anything?
1: Never, so help me God, never.
0: Jenkins does admit that he took other drugs that he seized during the course of his police work and gave them to Donald Stepp to sell. One thing becomes crystal clear. There is no love lost between Wayne Jenkins and Donald Stepp, and that's putting it mildly. When Step told me about the beginning of their drug-dealing partnership, he said it was Jenkins' idea, proposed while they were out at a casino together. But Jenkins has a completely different version of that story. Donnie's been asking me for years, for he sees me on TV, he sees me in the newspaper making the biggest grabs
1: in Baltimore City, because I always got a lot of weed, a lot of coke, a lot of heroin, and I, I swear on this. He was like, man, I keep telling you tell telling you, are some enormous coke way, I can sell any coke you give me, I can sell anything. I just got to find the right person to buy it. I'll give the money back to you. And I'll give it to Donnie, like an idiot, like an idiot, like a greedy fool. I will give it to Donnie to sell.
0: And while Step testified at trial that Jenkins made hundreds of thousands of dollars off of their partnership, Jenkins puts that figure much lower.
1: That's why I'm so upset with him, like the, the exaggeration he's doing. all am saying we made all kinds of money. Donnie's the biggest exaggerator I've ever met in my life, and he's a straight liar. None of it's true. None of it.
0: So what's your estimation of how how much you gave him and maybe what it was worth ultimately? Total of my whole life messing with him.
1: A total of the very most would be three total keys, which would be $45,000 total. And then I gave him several pounds of marijuana. I would say say a total maybe 50 pounds of weed. So that would be... Another twenty five grand. That's total, that's over a course of years.
0: That does put a certain amount of drugs back on the street, right?
1: It's wrong. I can't I'm not gonna justify it wasn't wrong. Justify I can't do that because it was wrong.
0: I did go back and run all of this past Donnie Step. He was angry to hear that Jenkins is going back on what he pled guilty to, and fully sticks by his original story that it was Jenkins who proposed their criminal partnership and that together they sold a million dollars worth of drugs.